Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty. This week, I have a quick and dirty tip about the difference between words for smells and a tidbit about the phrase battle royale. But we're going to start with an excerpt from a new book by Lynn Murphy that I absolutely loved. The Prodigal Tongue, The Love-Hate Relationship Between American and British English. Murphy is an American linguist who spent much of her adult life living and teaching in Britain and noticing and documenting the differences between the two languages and cultures. The book was so great I had a hard time choosing a section to excerpt, but over the years many of you have asked why some words use the ise suffix and other words use the ize suffix, and she had a section on that topic, so that's what you're going to hear now. In 2012, a British learning disability charity quizzed over 2,000 adults on their spelling and found that about a third could not spell the word definitely. The headlines that followed proclaimed that the population had become too dependent on spell checkers, which had ruined our ability to spell. Those headlines made me more concerned for the population's critical reasoning faculties than for their spelling. The fact that a lot of people in 2012 couldn't spell tells us only that a lot of people in 2012 couldn't spell. Unless we know how well people in 1972 spelled, we can't know that spelling skills have worsened. In fact, we should be open to the possibility that spell checkers help us to learn spelling. If not for the gentle insistence of spell checkers, I'm sure I'd still be spelling accommodation with one M. Technology can teach, but people like to blame technology. And so Britain worries about American spelling imperialism, which BBC broadcaster John Humphreys says, quote, now stretches via your desktop through spellcheck, unquote, resulting in, quote, a deep sense of grievance at what the Americans are doing to us, unquote. I've had to listen to this grievance a lot, but I haven't seen the damage. Awareness that Americans spell things differently seems to have ignited a newfound sense of orthographic patriotism in many Brits. Sure, you'd probably find more color without a U in Britain today than 50 years ago, because there are people who haven't figured out how to change the dictionary in their spell checker or autocomplete feature. But British English hasn't succumbed to a U-less color. It is still considered to be a misspelling. The case of the suffixes ise and ize, on the other hand, indicates that technology may be moving correct spelling in the U.S. and U.K. away from each other rather than merging them. It's a complicated situation with a complicated history. The ize spelling is a way of representing a Greek spelling in English using the Latin alphabet. But the French spell the same suffix as ise. Some of these words came into English from post-classical Latin, which used the Greek Z, characterized from characterizer, some from French with an S, specialized from specialiser, I probably pronounced that wrong, sorry, and some were invented in English by using ise or ize as a suffix. For instance, apology gave rise to apologize with an S, and later apologize with a Z, and personal got the verb form personalize with a Z, and later personalize with an S. Then, in the 19th century, use of the suffix exploded, 
The Oxford English Dictionary records about 900 new IZE words from the 1800s. That's as many IZE words as had been added to English in the previous six centuries, and three times as many as they recorded for the 20th century. The year 1825 gave us lionize, minimize, and objectivize. The 1850s were good for euphemize, externalize, and serialize. Many of these new words were British before they were American. This verbifying suffix fest coincided with, maybe even spurred on, the mid-1800s British shift toward preferring the I-S-E spelling for both new and old verbs. This shift may have been inspired by the large number of 19th-century I-S-E words that were borrowed directly from French, including galvanize, mobilize, and polarize. The 19th-century rise of the I-S-E spelling in Britain coincided with its downfall in America. Noah Webster's shift to I-Z-E makes the spelling correspond unambiguously to the Z-full pronunciation. I-S-E can also be pronounced with S, as in promise, anise, and vice. But while the shift to I-Z-E is one of Webster's most successful interventions, it's also terrifically incomplete. Americans don't use a Z in the verbs advertise, merchandise, surprise, or compromise, though they're all pronounced with a Z. There are historical explanations for some of the exceptions, but the facts of the matter are Webster's change made American spelling more stable in that it reduced the number of spelling options, but it didn't make the spelling completely regular. While Americans had made a firm decision about how to spell the suffix, the British didn't feel a particular need to conform. The preference for ISE in the 1800s was reversed, at least for some words, after the publication of the Oxford English Dictionary starting in 1884. Faced with many words with complicated spelling histories and usage, the OED editors decided to treat all the words the same and to present the I-Z-E spelling before the I-S-E one for each verb. They chose I-Z-E on the grounds that the suffix goes back to Greek, even if not all the words containing the suffix do. The Z spelling became more popular with British publishers after the OED, but the S spelling was still considered an acceptable alternative. Things went wrong for the British Z in the 1990s. In the 1990s, the Times in London and Cambridge University Press suddenly switched allegiance to the I-S-E suffix after preferring I-Z-E for the 70 years prior. At this point, spell checkers had been readily available for about a decade. But since they allowed both I-S-E and I-Z-E in British English, documents could pass muster while confusingly spelling the same word in two ways. The Internet had recently been rolled out to the public, giving people more opportunity to read other countries' spelling than ever before. These developments led to two lines of thinking— one, spelling should be consistent within a document, no more mixing I-Z-E and I-S-E. And two, if Americans are spelling it I-Z-E, then I-S-E must be the British spelling. And so people started believing that I-Z-E is American, perhaps even believing that the spelling was invented in America, and that it is simply wrong in Britain.
A spoof message from the Queen that does the rounds after U.S. elections declares that Her Majesty is retaking the colonies and the suffix I-Z-E will be replaced by the suffix I-S-E. As if I-Z-E isn't British. There's even reluctance to use the I-Z-E suffix among those who know that the fashion for I-S-E is recent. A 2011 letter in the British Medical Journal quotes Fowler's modern English usage. The primary rule is that all words of the type authorize, civilize, and legalize may legitimately be spelled with either I-Z-E or I-S-E throughout the English-speaking world, except in America where I-Z-E is compulsory. But then the letter writer concludes, Speaking purely personally, I think that anything that is compulsory in America should be avoided. Our globalized communication culture hasn't killed off ISE. It's strengthened it. ISE is not just a suffix. It's a badge of honor, declaring to all and sundry, I am not American. True to form, when wanting to look not American, British English looks more French. Again, that was an excerpt from The Prodigal Tongue by Lynn Murphy, included here with permission from Penguin Books. Next, since we talked about noisome and being stinky last week, we'll continue the thread and talk about multiple words that describe pleasant and unpleasant smells, and one word that's sometimes mistakenly used to describe smells. Odorous, malodorous, and odoriferous are all ways of describing a smell, and ultimately all go back to the same Latin root that meant a smell or a scent. Let's start with odorous. Samuel Johnson's famous Dictionary of the English Language from 1818 defines it in only positive terms, fragrant, perfumed, sweet of scent. One example he included is from Edmund Spencer's Sonnet 64, which compares the scent of a woman to various flowers. Such fragrant flowers do give most odorous smell. The meaning of words can change, though, and today odorous can be used to describe good or bad smells, and people seem to use it most often for bad smells. Here's an example from the Robin Page mystery, Death at Rotting Dean. So we took the coin, pocketed his reservations, and hurried off to the white horse, where the coffin, as the odorous old coach was known, was about to begin its afternoon run to Brighton. Odorous also often appears in scientific writing to simply describe something that has a scent. Here's an example from a physiological psychology textbook. Very odorous compounds may require less solubility because relatively few molecules need to reach the receptors. Moving on to malodorous, the mal prefix in malodorous means bad, just as it does in malformed, maltreated, and maladjusted. Some less obvious words that use the mal prefix to mean bad include malaise, which means bad ease, Malady, which means roughly badness that is had or received. Malaria, which means bad air. And malevolent, which means bad wishing. So by now, you've probably guessed that malodorous is reserved for bad smells. In general, I'd say malodorous smells are worse than odorous smells. 
For example, the malodorous entrails made squiggly gag. Finally, the least common of these three words to describe smells is odoriferous. According to a Google book search, it was actually the most common of the three words in 1800, but it's been declining ever since. Like odorous, odoriferous originally described a pleasant smell and now can describe good or bad smells, and is most often used for bad smells, although Garner's modern English usage continues to say it should be reserved for good smells. Interestingly, odoriferous comes from the same Latin odor root, combined with the word for to bear or to carry. So it means to bear or to carry a scent. And now we have to talk about a word that some people mistakenly use for smells, odious. It sounds a lot like odorous, but odious comes from a Latin word that meant hatred, and you use it as an adjective to describe something that is offensive, repulsive, or deserving of hate. Squiggly found cleaning fish to be an odious task. The problem is that you can find something smelly to be offensive, repulsive, or deserving of hate. Does Squiggly dislike cleaning fish because it grosses him out in general, or because it's smelly? It could be both an odorous and odious task. My advice is to be careful when using odious, although it wouldn't be wrong to use it in a sentence where it could mean the task was repulsive because it was smelly, or just that a potentially smelly task was repulsive. I wouldn't use it in such sentences because it probably isn't the clearest way to explain what you mean. To me, something like reading online comments can be an odious task is clear, but squiggly found cleaning fish to be an odious task risks confusing some readers who might confuse odious with odorous because of the context and the similar sound. So your quick and dirty tip is that odorous, malodorous, and odoriferous all describe things that smell. If you want to describe a bad smell, malodorous is probably the safest choice. Also, these all sound like $10 words to me, so consider whether something simpler, like smelly or fragrant, might be a better choice. Finally, odious doesn't specifically mean smelly, but could be used to describe something smelly if it were offensive or repulsive. So be careful when you use it because some people confuse it with odorous. Next, today's tidbit is for all you Fortnite players out there and all of you whose kids, friends, bosses, and spouses are playing Fortnite. In case you don't know, Fortnite is a wildly popular video game. More than 40 million people have downloaded it, and up to 2 million people have been recorded playing at the same time. When you enter the game, you can choose to play in one of two modes, Save the World or Battle Royale. Recently, we started wondering, what is a Battle Royale anyway? A Battle Royale, also spelled Battle Royal, is a fight between several combatants. It doesn't have anything to do with kings or queens. The royal in this expression simply means big, ostentatious, or imposing. In the world of video games, Battle Royale describes a genre in which the goal of the game is to defeat multiple opponents and be the last player standing. In the real world, it can refer to any heated dispute, free-for-all, or fight involving more than two people. In the world of sports, it refers to a particularly bloody type of cockfighting, 
In traditional cockfighting, which is now illegal, two birds are placed in a fighting pit with sharp spurs hooked to their heels. They're left to fight until one kills or disables the other. In a battle royale, though, many birds are put down together in the pit, and the last surviving fowl gains the prize. This fight was similar to one called the Welsh Main, in which 16 birds were pitted against one another, then eight, then four, until only two of the poor creatures were left to fight. And finally, in the world of boxing, a battle royale refers to an old-time fight in which several men would duke it out at one time. Battles royale were popular in England for centuries, but public opinion turned on them by the end of the 18th century. The, quote, sport moved to the American colonies, however, and flourished throughout the Civil War and Reconstruction. All too often, the fights involved black men, who were sometimes blindfolded, fighting before a white audience. In 1911, the New York State Athletic Commission banned such fights, describing them as revolting spectacles. The practice continued, however, for another 50-odd years. In fact, one such battle is a pivotal scene in Ralph Ellison's 1952 novel, Invisible Man. So there's your tidbit for today. A battle royale is any fight involving more than one person or creature. It can also mean a particularly intense fight. In past times, battles royale were brutal and all too real. But today, most of them are pretend, played out on a video screen. That segment was written by Samantha Enslin, who runs Dragonfly Editorial. You can find her at dragonflyeditorial.com or on Twitter as dragonflyedit. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find all the old Grammar Girl articles and podcasts at quickanddirtytips.com. And I'm Grammar Girl on both Facebook and Twitter. That's all. Thanks for listening. 